Congregation, as we will continue our series through the book of Jonah, please turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, which is the whole third chapter. Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. And this is not human literature, but God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. Congregation, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been looking at the book of Jonah for a couple of weeks now, and we have learned early on in this book that the book itself is not primarily about Jonah that it is also not about a great fish, but it is about the great sovereign God who rules heaven and earth. Jonah was a prophet in Israel about 800 years before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was called by God for his special mission, as we read in the second verse of chapter 1, Arise, go to Nineveh that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now Jonah, as we know, did not obey God, but he boarded a ship that went to the opposite direction of where he was supposed to go, and he did so in order to flee, as it says, from the presence of God, which of course is a futile endeavor. God brings about the massive storm. He converts the sailors in the midst of it. 
and then had them hurl Jonah into the stormy waters. And then the very God who brought about the storm, the very God who brought the sailors to the point of hurling Jonah into the water, rescues Jonah through an enormous fish that swallows him and keeps him in his belly for three days. From there, Jonah prays his psalm, his prayer of repentance and praise. And then it says at the end of chapter 2, And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is where we are. Jonah is on dry land, and in this third chapter we see a wondrous example of God's grace as we look into the events therein in the chronological order, having four points. First, God's second call to Jonah. Secondly, Jonah's obedience. Thirdly, the conversion of Nineveh. And fourthly, God relents. So the first point, God's second call to Jonah. In light of what we have seen in the first two chapters, chapter 3 confronts us right away with the immeasurable and wondrous grace of God when it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. After Jonah's open rebellion and defiance against the God of heaven and earth, not only does God save him, not only does God lead him to repentance, not only does he put Jonah back on his feet again, no, he fully reinstates Jonah and repeats his call for him to go to Nineveh. There is still one little difference now between the first and the second call, which the English Standard Version sadly misses completely, perhaps because it is only one letter in the Hebrew that has been changed in the call itself. While in chapter 1, God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh and cry against it, he now, in chapter 3, tells him to cry to it or unto it. Now, without reading too much into this slight change, there seems to be now the option of mercy included. It is now not exclusively a word against Nineveh, which seems to imply only judgment. It is now a word to or unto Nineveh that seems to imply either judgment or repentance, depending on Nineveh's reaction. Much has happened in Jonah's life in the preceding days. He has learned about the absolute impossibility of fleeing from God. He has learned furthermore about the absolute sovereignty of God, of God's international, all-encompassing sovereignty. And he has learned about the grace of God. 
In a sense, Jonah himself becomes a sign for the grace of God. Jonah himself becomes a sign for the gospel. Jonah himself becomes a sign for the Lord Jesus Christ. As the New Testament records in Luke chapter 11, where it says, When the crowds were increasing, he, Jesus, began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now here, Jesus is addressing Israel's unbelief as the people continuously demanded signs or miracles in order to believe. They wanted to be judges over who Jesus was. And now the judge commands, show me a miracle. Then we can talk about believing what you say you are. But they wouldn't get a sign, and he tells them that they won't receive any sign except for the sign of Jonah. You see, Jesus' life and his words testified clearly to who he was, and the Israelites understood perfectly. That's why they were so upset. But there was a sign for them, and that sign was his death. Three days in the grave and then the resurrection unto life pictured in Noah and the great fish. And Jesus warns the Israelites that the very people of Nineveh will condemn them in judgment because they, although they weren't even God's covenant people, did repent and they only had Jonah, the sign, the picture. But Israel had the real thing in flesh and blood, the Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate, and they would not repent. Beloved, it pains me to say, but I have to say that the Ninevites will most likely also stand up against this nation that had so long of a gospel witness. A land that had had so much sound preaching for so long, not only of the sign, not only of Jonah, but of Jesus Christ himself, the real thing. And how we have given it all away and have become a nation of rebels against the living God and his anointed son, Jesus Christ. The Ninevites will stand up against us too, on Judgment Day, unless we repent. And this Jonah, 
who preached the good news to the Ninevites, became himself a sign for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that regardless of his past sin, his rebellion, God starts completely afresh with him and makes him even a prophetic picture of our blessed Lord Jesus Christ. He forgives and disregards the past, and he fully reinstates a repentant and matured Jonah. Such is our gracious God. This should, this should give us a little bit to think about. About our own past sin that we, like dogs, run back to their own vomit. We keep running back, although they're forgiven in Jesus Christ. This should also make us think when it comes to church discipline. Sin in the congregation that when somebody has committed sins, as vile as they might have been, there is a coming back. There is a full reinstating. There is full forgiveness. There is a complete new beginning, a clean sheet in Jesus Christ. And if we do not understand that, we do not understand the gospel. I have to tell you, some of the ungra most ungracious people the most ungracious and unforgiving people that I've encountered in my life were churchgoers. This cannot be. We, more than anybody else, know what forgiveness means. We, more than anybody else, know that the blood of Christ is capable of washing away the vilest of sins. We should be the first in this world, being eager to forgive and to decidedly forget and to start afresh with whoever it is that seeks repentance. God forgives Jonah's past rebellion and sin. He fully reinstates him. And this leads us right into our second point, Jonah's obedience. Verse 3, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now here we can learn at least two valuable lessons right here. The first one is the lesson that is phrased out in Romans chapter 11 verse 29. That the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God's calling will never be frustrated in any way, shape, or form. God is never frustrated because his will is always done. He called Jonah to preach to Nineveh, and Jonah, it is going to be who does it, and no other. Secondly, God's discipline always, always works. Now here we see the anatomy of God's discipline through hardship. Jonah sins, undoubtedly, and he sins severely by rebelling against God's command to go to Nineveh. Not only is Jonah now fully forgiven and restored, he is also a different man. The first time when God's command came, Jonah ignored it, even rebelled against it. But see how he reacts now. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And here comes his reaction. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. 
The only proper reaction when God speaks. Yes and amen. Immediate, full obedience. And Jonah goes into the city of Nineveh, and it says he called out, yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Do you see the difference between the old Jonah, the pre-storm Jonah, and the new Jonah? It's like dealing with two different Jonas here. What has happened? What has changed Jonah so massively? Well, the answer, beloved, is not one we like. It is certainly not one that we want to hear, but I can tell you it is a true answer. God has matured Jonah and prepared him for his task through severe hardship and suffering. God matured Jonah through severe hardship and suffering. You can clearly trace it through these first three chapters of the book. First, the rebellious immature Jonah who thinks he can flee from the presence of the Lord. Then, severe suffering, fear, anxiety, crisis, and suddenly, a matured, grateful, and obedient Jonah. And here we have an example of how suffering turns a rebellious, immature Christian into a grateful and mature one. And this is what you keep hearing from this pulpit, that suffering and hardship are God's choice means of grace to sanctify you. These are His tools. This is how He molds and shapes you, transforms you into the image of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Suffering and hardship are part of the deal for every Christian. That's why we are called to count the cost. If there wasn't any cost, what do you want to count? The Christian life is hard. We should say this more often. It is not easy gliding into heavenly bliss. It is hardship. It is persecution. It is suffering. It is molding and shaping. It is rubbing off edges of us through suffering, through hardship, through loss, through pain, through frustrated expectations, through conflicts, through sleepless nights, through disappointment. That is how God turns vile sinners into saints, through suffering and hardship. And God loves us enough to do whatever it takes, even severe pain and suffering, to sanctify us. That's how much He loves us. But let us now look at what a wonderful impact Jonah's ministry has To Nineveh, our third point, the conversion of Nineveh. Beginning in verse 5, we see the most wondrous thing where it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. (laughs) You, you, You have to pause here 
and, and think about what happened here. Because from an infamously cruel and violent pagan people that was feared by just about everyone, one would expect many reactions, many reactions to the preaching of God's truth but not exactly immediate, heartfelt, and deep corporate repentance. And this shows us, if we're honest, how little we believe in the power of the proclaimed Word of God. Now, this reaction, to be sure, was not just a superficial uh, embarrassment for being caught This was true and heartfelt repentance for sinning against the living and true God. You can see it in several ways in our text that this was true, sincere, heartfelt repentance. First of all, they mourn over their sin. There is true sorrow in them as they mourn over their sin. It says they called for a feast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They humbled themselves publicly for their sin. They wailed and cried and mourned over their sins. You know, there's a false kind of repentance that only grieves over the consequences of sin, over being caught or over being exposed. You can see this very easily uh, when this happens because such a such superficial um, repentance is far more interested in covering up than in true repentance. They say, okay, I have repented. That's that. Let's move on. No, true repentance is not afraid of what others think. It is not concerned with reputation. It is concerned with one and one thing only. I have offended the Holy God. There you see true repentance. Not in defiance, not in covering up, not in minimizing, but in true sorrow and wailing to have offended the holy God. There is no tendency in true repentance to cover up or to move on quickly as we often see in our day and age. And then we use or abuse the term grace, grace, grace to cover up. It is grace that leads to repentance, my dear friends, to true repentance. How can grace alleviate repentance and the ramifications of true wailing over sin? True repentance, beloved, and please don't forget this. True repentance humiliates itself voluntarily and willingly. It is not argumentative. It is not loud. It is not defensive. It is not interested in one's own reputation. It is only interested in the restored relationship between the sinner and God. They put on sackcloth. They called a fast, even for the animals in Nineveh. The sackcloth is a sign of severe grief and self-humiliation. Now look how the king of Nineveh reacts to Jonah's preaching, verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. 
And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The first person in Nineveh sits in sackcloth and ashes. Here a pagan king humbles himself before the king of kings and before his own people, and he sets an example. That is leadership. That is leadership. He's not only the first ruler, he's also the first self-humiliator in repentance. God had mercy over him, and he broke him, and he fell on his knee, and responded this way, the only way one should and must respond to standing face to face to the holy, holy, holy God. And it says he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. My dear friends, this public display of repentance, heartfelt, true, sincere repentance, is real. Not like those of the Israelites 800 years later, of which our Lord warns in Matthew chapter 6, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. See, this is false repentance. This is false display of uh, piety. Just doing things in order to be seen. He, Christ doesn't speak against the public signs of repentance, but he goes right for the motive. If this public sign for repentance is only to be seen, it is worth nothing. You are again just interested in being exalted and not in humbling yourself. No, this was sincere, deep repentance. The king called for this repentance, his people. Now, that would shock some of our brothers who always argue that the politicians have nothing to do with the Christian faith. The king calls for repentance. The king calls for fasting. The king calls for sackcloth and ashes. That is a godly king, a pagan king who turned into a godly king and is still preaching to us many, many years later. Here we see God having mercy on a whole people and granting them true repentance after gifting them with the true preaching of his true word. You see, their sincerity is also visible in the second mark, which is the actual turning away from sin. Verse 8, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. My dear friends, it has to be said, there is no repentance without turning away from sin. Otherwise, it's just words. And therefore, we have to say that feeling sorry for sin alone is not repentance, although it is part 
of repentance. Because if you say you feel sorry for your sin and do not turn away from it, how sorry do you really feel? And for what reason do you feel sorry? If you feel sorry because you have offended the true and living God who is holy, 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 you will immediately turn away from your sin. But if you're playing games, you will not. You will go on and on and on. And you will become one of these unteachable, stubborn fools who just openly say, yes, I'm a sinner. I feel sorry for my sin. But just carry on, carry on, carry on, because you're always right. And whoever disagrees with you is by definition wrong. The Ninevites were known for their violence. They were known for their cruelty. And so the, the turning away from this chief characterizing sin of theirs was also the chief sign of true repentance. This is what they were known for. This was the sin they were known for. Cruelty. And immediately they turned away from it. And now they will not be known for it anymore. And then there's a third sign to show us that it was true repentance. And that is that they turned not only away from their sin, because you cannot turn away from something without turning to something else. They turned unto the living God. They turned to God. In verse 8 again, where the king calls his people to call out mightily to God. See, here is a world that constantly tries to self-reform. Self-help books, self-help seminars, which basically means self can change itself. But here's the problem. Self cannot change. Because self will always be the old self that it was before it started to try to change self. Self has to be changed by God. And that's why they turn unto God. They turn from their sin unto God. You cannot turn to nothing. You cannot turn from sin to self. It doesn't make any sense because that's what you are, sin. But they turn to God. The whole city, beginning with their king, turned to God. And here's an important statement that shows us their hope in God's mercy. Listen to what the king says after calling them to repentance. He says, who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, there's something in the king's heart that makes him a little bit bold. A little bit, just a tiny bit bold. Who knows? You know what he's saying here? What he's saying here is, if he destroys us, he's well within his right. We are wicked. But he says, who knows? Maybe there's some grace in God's heart that he will have mercy and compassion upon us. A bold Tiny but bold assertion. What a wonderful display of true faith and repentance from a pagan king down to the lowest peasant. Of course, now we have to ask if we're true to our mission to understand this text. What brought this hard, hardened people to its knees? Was it Jonah's articulate preaching? Was it his eloquence? 
Well, certainly not. Here's what O. Palmer Robertson rightly says. He writes, It was not the force of the argument presented by the prophet that moved the people. It was the power of God's truth that pierced to the heart. And he goes on, Never rely on your own persuasive powers as the way to save sinners. It is God and His truth that people believe. You must remain only the instrument. End of quote. Oh, if we just understood this, that the Word of God has power. I often remind myself, if I'm just reading a text to you, either the law or the text before the sermon, that the Word itself has power. That I'm not only quickly reading through it to get on with what I have to say, but the Word itself has power. The Holy Spirit uses the Word to change hearts. You see, God had mercy on the Ninevites. And even if we didn't have verse 10, we could still assume the outcome. We could still assume our fourth point, which is God relents. Verse 10. When God saw that they did what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Well, I just said, even if we didn't have verse 10 or the outcome of the story, it wouldn't have been a cliffhanger for us. Why? Because we know God. We know God from his word. He is the God, for example, of 1 John chapter 1. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, God saw their faith and he saw its fruit, repentance, and therefore he relented from destroying Nineveh. Such is our God, beloved, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The Ninevites repented just like the thief on the cross repented. They humbled themselves and God had mercy, just as he promises. Of course, it's a wonderful story for us to read. But we also have to understand that what we have read here is exactly what America needs today. This is what the West needs. It needs first God's covenant people, just like Jonah, repenting from playing church and from rebelling against God's great commission. You see, the, re- the, the restoring or the rebuilding of a nation, the turning to God of a culture, must begin at the house of God with the repentance of God's people to put out sin, to put out worldliness from their churches, from their homes, from their hearts, to give themselves and to live henceforth for the glory of God. Just like Jonah had to learn. That with God it's either all or nothing. Secondly, 
It needs the repentant and now matured church to boldly and faithfully call out this world in their sin and to proclaim the unalterated word of God, the whole counsel of God. The church must, through life and word, carry out the Great Commission into all the earth. And thirdly, the world needs a church that trusts its God and relentlessly prays for Him to lead many in this world to repentance and to use them to mightily build His kingdom for the glory of His own name. That's what should be our mission. That should be our heartbeat. That the kingdom of God will be built in this world. Beloved, it has to be said in the clearest of terms that America will not, will not become a Christian nation through the hand of the even most conservative or even most Christian president. It will not. We need Christian politicians. No doubt is we need Christian everythings. But what we need most is a repentant church. Repentant Christians who stop playing around with sin, who stop playing around with worldliness, and finally obey the Great Commission to bring the whole world to Christ. The church in this country has been refuting and refusing to repent for so long that it doesn't even recognize the looming judgment. And this unwillingness to repent, for example, is why we have been moving the eschatological goalposts increasingly towards pessimism in order to excuse our own inactivity and disobedience. Have you ever asked yourself that why nothing, nothing, nothing makes Christians more angry than a preacher who preaches eschatological optimism? Have you ever asked yourself, I've been on the receiving end for decades now. Because if our eschatology, because if our end times view is optimistic, then the church is being indicted for inactivity. But we have been moving the goalpost. More pessimism, no more pessimism, more pessimism, because then we can say, look, it's supposed to be this way. The church is supposed to to lose, or as one famous preacher once said, we're supposed to lose here. That is blasphemy. If Christ sits on the throne, how in the world are we supposed to lose down here? If with the coming of Christ everything went bad, why in the world did he come? No, it is our pathetic excuse to be inactive and lazy and fearful. We have constantly lowered our eschatological expectations. And then we claim that the weak church, it's how it's supposed to be. Praise the Lord. The church in the West, the church in this country must repent and now tirelessly carry out the Great Commission in word and life. We have to do our God-given duty to go and make disciples of all nations 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And then, by God's grace, we will see repentance and blessing and revival and millions and millions who are now on their way to eternal destruction will say, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Oh, may God have mercy upon us. And may he drive us to the ends of the earth for the glory of his name. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Almighty triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed be your holy name, for you are God and there is no other. Oh, how grateful we are for this book of Jonah. How we see your grace and your mercy and your desire that all be saved. Oh, Lord, help us to be obedient, to carry out this great commission. May we not look to other churches where we say they are not faithful or this one is not faithful, but may we look at ourselves and see where we, as Walker URC, can repent. We thank you, Lord, that you have brought possibilities our way to engage in the great commission. Oh, Lord, keep doing this with us. Open our hearts, enlarge our hearts, that we can not rest until we have brought this gospel of the salvation of sinners to the end of the earth. Be with us, help us, cleanse us, use us, and move us for the glory of your name.